0: thanks for listening to this word in your ear podcast if you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad free priority booking for our live events and to take part in our weekly quiz go to patreon.com/word in your ear for more details hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn
1: you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank
2: You're listening to a podcast from the Word. I am a lineman for the county, and I drive the main road.
1: Now, there aren't uh, many songs that have had entire books uh, written about them. In fact, I just had a look to see what's available. And you can get one on Hallelujah, you can get one on Stagger Lee, Louie Louie, Imagine, White Christmas, We Shall Overcome, and The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Although I, sus- <laughs> I suspect that it's more to its legal complexities than its, um, <laughs> its soul plumbing lyric. But Wichita Alignment has just joined this uh, exclusive club. Uh, a song, let's not forget, that is only eight lines long. Uh, Jimmy Webb uh, wrote it in under two hours. He never f- thought that he'd finished it. Um, he did a rough demo, put it on a cassette, posted it to Glen Campbell, and here we are 51 years later at a point where it has matured like a fine wine. <laughs> and uh, a significant number of right-thinking folk all over the world reckon it to be the most magical record ever made. And, uh, and one of those people has written 270 sparkling pages about it uh, in a sensational book, and please welcome him, his fourth appearance on our podcast, the great Dylan Jones. Yay! <clears throat> and the book is called "The Wicked Alignman: Searching in the Sun for the World's Great Greatest Unfinished Song." So, Dylan, you start the book by talking about how you were, um, you know, brought up in a very kind of American music household. In fact, we ought to ask you the standard yeah, it's question, a standard which question we've
0: probably asked you this before: yeah. What were what record player was in your home when you were a child, and what was playing on it?
2: The record player, I think, would have been a radiogram, or a stereogram, as my father called it. Stereogram. And the first chapter is basically about this, and it's about the fact that I was brought up in a house where the likes of uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, um, uh, Sergio Mendes, the, The Seekers... Right. You know, which... Classified, I suppose, as sort of easy listening. I mean, that was the stuff we listened to at home. Um, And there's, I remember my mother loved Dean Martin. She used to call him an old smoothie. The swells. The swells. She called them the swells. That's right. She called Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin swells. and you, I, I remembered this whilst I was writing the book is that now, you know, music's everywhere it's free, it's just, it's, you know sort of my asthma of music and I remember her saying to my father once, should we play the, the new Dean Martin record again you know, because they were, they were, they were special sort of artefacts um, and in, in the 90s uh, as I'm sure most of you remember easy listening came back it was sort of resurrected And they called it Lounge Corps to try and make it sound fashionable. (laughs) And and I think it was brought back because everything else had already been brought back. You'd had the jazz revival, the blues revival, the ska revival. Everything had been revived. And I'm not sure that many people actually liked it, although lots of people pretended to. But I had all those records. I had all the records I'd had that were my parents, and also I'd got all those weird Japanese import CDs and the red... I, I, and I don't think it's cute, I don't think it's arch, I don't think they're guilty pleasures, I just think they're great, great records, and, and one of my favourite records was, was Wichita Lineman.
0: Can we quash, the, while we're doing this, can we quash the idea of the guilty pleasure? Oh, yeah, it's a stupid viral. idea. It's Massimally massively against it. It's stupid. It, ideas it is. It's music.
1: If it's you it, like it. it you like there's it. There's things It's you like, And if you like it, you like it exactly.
2: Yeah, but there was something. Dead. We it killed was, it. Right, we killed and it. Moving <laughs> on. Moving <laughs> <laughs> on. That's it. We can go now.
0: But there, were, there was something about the about the sound of these records, wasn't there? That was kind of different from the prevailing sound of pop music or you know rock and roll. Well, they, they
2: weren't say. actually. Um, they weren't topical and they weren't fashionable, and even though they were popular, they weren't considered to be part of the zeitgeist because they weren't about the zeitgeist. They right. weren't in. The, they weren't in the zeitgeist. And a lot of those big performers from the, from the fifties and the and the early sixties were still making records at that at that time, and they were still very popular. I mean, Frank Sinatra. I think this is right. Strangers in the Night was six sixty seven or six, sixty eight, like yeah, yeah, yeah. possibly his most yeah, huge commercially successful record. So these were these were these were popular records, and they were all over all over my house, uh, yeah. my house, my parents' house. So look, we're going to talk
0: about the, the, the two people involved in uh, in Wichita Lineman. Uh, first of all, Jim Webb. Tell us the story of Jim Webb. Is a, a unique case, isn't it?
2: Yeah, because he was he was brought up. He was born and brought up in Oklahoma. Actually, quite close, weirdly, to where Glen Campbell was born and brought up. And his dad in, was Christian. His dad
1: was a Christian minister. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he
2: sang in the choir and sang in yeah. church and um, was was um, was taught to play the piano and was, very, and was was gifted. Like Glen Campbell, he was a he was a gifted musician. It seemed to be a sort of an, an innate gift. And he he was sort of classically trained, but he quite soon in his in his teens developed an ability and a desire to write songs. And when he did become successful in the late sixties, he you know he had he was he had one sort of one one leg or one foot in Vegas and the other one in in sort of San Francisco and wasn't really trusted by either camp because he was um, you know he kind of looked like that he had kind of. The hair that you would have if you were a square that was trying to be a hippie, you know. <laughs> That's true. Um, but he, in a very short period of time, wrote half a dozen of the of the greatest and still the most popular songs ever. How did ever. he
1: get? Because he finished up quite soon
2: being on the. I think the pub, signed to the publishing wing of Motown. I think it was. He was a star. I mean, how for, did
1: he man? How did he get there?
2: That he was was he, well, he was a hustler. He he moved to. His family moved to California and then the family sort of broke up and there was a death in the family. And he stayed in California and was hustling to be a songwriter and he became a staff songwriter at Motown. Not a particularly successful one. I think he wrote a Christmas song for the Supremes. Yeah, he wrote Uh, Christmas Tree for the Supremes. Yeah, that's right. That's right, yeah. Um, and, And they let him go and one of the songs that he took with him was By the Time I Get to Phoenix, which obviously... No-one at Motown wanted. I think there's a story um, about uh, when he was hustling to try
0: trying to make it. He, he, he got some advice from Louis Armstrong.
2: Yeah, that was a bizarre story, which I checked. Because when I first heard it, I wasn't sure that it was true. It sounded made up, and I checked as many... And then I eventually asked him about it when I met him. But it was true. He, um, he, uh, he was sitting in a... I think he'd been sent to um, uh, Vegas to try and pitch sell one of his songs to someone who was performing in Vegas, it wasn't Louis Armstrong and he was waiting in this room before this performer, I'm sorry I can't remember who it is Um, and he hears his voice and it's the literally unmistakable voice (laughs) of of, of Louis Armstrong and he said what you got there and he showed him what he had and he, he sort of almost grunted encouragement and this 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 Obviously, when you're a fledgling songwriter, he's probably 17 or 18 at yeah. the time. This is a massive, take, epic you deal. Would,
0: you would take that as a sign, you would you? you Louis Armstrong says, keep at it, yeah. son. And, yeah. yeah. and he did. You keep at it,
2: and he did. But he,
0: he was—he uh, kind of didn't fit with the rock crowd because he didn't play the guitar, did he? He was, kinda, he was a penis. piano man. He yeah. was a piano man, and he was a kind of... He
2: Plus,
0: could, he could orchestrate, and he his, could, the he could first, write music.
2: The, the first... I think this is right. Uh, at the same time as... Um, by the time I get to Phoenix was a hit for Glen Campbell. He'd also written Up, Up and Away, the Fifth um, Dimension for the Fifth Dimension. Yeah, massive song. great Which song.
1: was a huge. That was the real pivot in his career, wasn't it? Yeah, there he won loads m- of
2: Grammys for it. Grammys, and, it was, and he yeah. wrote six or seven songs. But the then rock. he, I think he was when he was worming his way or be, or becoming sort of embroiled in the in the L.A. Um, scene. Um, The sort of Wonderland Avenue, Laurel Canyon scene of of Los Angeles in the late 60s. And I think he was in a recording studio with Joni Mitchell and a few other people. And some, you know, really, you know, cool dude said, hey, it's Mr. Balloons, (laughs) you know, which was obviously a very disparaging remark. So, yeah, I think he, um, I think this is, I I mean, he's a lovely man. uh, An absolutely lovely, lovely man. But I think this there was a sort of bit of chippiness because yes. he wasn't being accepted by the people, by his peers, who he thought should pay him a bit more respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so was, he
0: to, was getting loads of respect from Frank Sinatra or <coughs> those kind of people, but, but probably all not hippies. enough from Mick Jagger and yeah, John correct. Lennon. Correct, yeah. <coughs> Which is what he would have wanted, because yeah. that's, that's his generation. Yeah.
1: How did he meet Glen Campbell? And we're going to come on to the Glen Campbell story in a moment, but how did he meet Glen Campbell? Because how did he get to make... Because Glen Campbell themes? covered...
2: I think the song... So I mean, The song the
1: so- was punted to Glenn, this, Glenn yeah, Campbell. Yeah,
2: the song was around. It was yeah. being punted to pe- people. And that, at that time, Glenn Campbell was like Jimmy Page. He was a virtuoso. He was an amazing guitarist. And in fact, if you go onto YouTube uh, and, and just punch in... Glenn Campbell, session guitarist, or just Glenn Campbell, early early sixties. You'll see all these extraordinary films. Oh, of they've them. seen them. They're phenomenal, incredible, absolutely. And he played on all the records by the Righteous Brothers, the 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 monkeys. When he was a member of the I can yeah. Turner. When he was a member of the Wrecking Crew, yeah. And um, uh, I mean, this I found fascinating because I knew <clears throat> I knew about probably six tenths of the story, but then I started in a really granular fashion trying to find out as much as I could and he was he was amazing um, but he wanted to be a, a pop star he wanted to be a, a, a successful performer and as well as having again a seemingly innate gift to, to, to play guitar he was a, a genuine virtuoso he had a beautiful singing voice and he heard a, d- a demo of, of Phoenix and, uh, and he covered it and then there is the famous song which is the, the famous story, which is the fact, as you said in the intro, he, he called Jimmy Webb up and, and, and commissioned a song to order, Can You Write Me Another Song About a Place? It's as simple as that.
1: Which is really interesting, this idea of geographical yeah, music. It, isn't it? <coughs> it's always
2: fascinating to me about American music that
0: seems to me half of it is about geography. It's about moving from
2: one place yeah, I mean, America. I I I I, um, I quote you in the book. Well, I don't quote you; I steal <laughs> some of your material, and uh, <laughs> but I do credit you. But I do credit you. But you're um, going to buy him a drink later on, so it's all fine. <laughs> um, yeah. But you're quite right, and um, you know it's that classic thing of you can write about <clears> those places, and it, and even Americans knew that you could be evocative in writing about those places where well, you couldn't if you were writing about Lowestoft. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. There's no British equivalent to that.
2: None. Literally the United none. Kingdom is so tiny that, that I mean, no, people, nobody writes as a Well, song about you it. can. I think Van Scandal Morrison gets away with Sheffield. it. You, you can be evocative if you're writing about. The Proclaimers have done it occasionally. Yeah, yeah. you write yeah, about it, Scotland, really Ireland occasionally, w- Wales. Yes. If you, if you yeah, take London England. out yeah. of the equation. Yeah. If you take the 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 the, the, the sort of the imperial city <laughs> out of the equation, you are writing about Surrey. Yeah. And yeah, you are. And Norwich, well, and, yeah, Link- and right, Lincolnshire, yeah. yes, and they're not particularly sexy places, no. are they?
0: So why is that?
2: And, and I'm wh- from lots of those places. But even so the word, even the word Wichita,
1: is exciting in itself. You know, it's yeah. romantic, not just to to, to 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 British people, but but to
2: people in America. It's the idea that, that these places have great promise and romance about them. Yeah, and the the song itself is, even though it's called Wichita Lyman, that's a and that's a place approximately in that area, the sort of Oklahoma-Kansas border. But it's sort of about anywhere. It's about the landscape. It's about the view. It's, it's about two things. I suppose that the weird thing is that the narrative, the song itself, the l- lyrics, are actually very, very particular. And yet, we, when, you've, when they're coupled with the orchestration, they leave this sort of great sort of landscape, this huge landscape, which you kind of fill yourself it's Jim, weird. I, I mean, interviewed... that's why it's such a a, a complex record, even yeah, though it's actually quite quite
1: quite a simple song. I interviewed uh, Jimmy Webb once, and he, he said that he's trying to describe how flat the Oklahoma plains are, where where the song comes from—a childhood memory, doesn't it? Of seeing yeah. the lineman. And he said, uh, "He said you can see fifty miles in any direction. If you stand on a matchbox, you can see a <laughs> Which is brilliant, <laughs> and, and you get this amazing feeling of just how gigantic. I'm going it to put
2: is. that in the paper bag. Thank <laughs> yeah. you very much, indeed, Mark. That's very, very kind of you. That's right. have it. Have it. <laughs> when I am, um, when I eventually, in fact, when I eventually. Um, Got to meet and interview Jimmy Webb. He said exactly the same thing my wife did when I when I told her I was doing the book. And I came home one way. She said, so "How was you know how was work?" And so I said, "It's great. I've got a new book deal. I've got this new new deal with Faber." And she said, "Oh, that's lovely." And I, she said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm going to write a book about Wichita alignment She said, oh, "Good. Why?" Yeah. <laughs> and Jimmy Webb said exactly the same thing. And actually. I, he was. Uh, like, what he, did you tell him? His body language was a bit sort of like, OK, this is in my diary. I'm seeing this guy from England. He's interviewing me, but he's writing a book about one song. And I think he thought I might be a bit sort of on the spectrum, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm not. Um, <laughs> uh, but he just, he's a delight. What a charming... Man, generous with his time and anecdotes, he was fantastic. He's fantastic. Yeah, He's, but tell he... us
1: the story about the, the writing again. So, so they they commissioned, uh, if I remember rightly, Glen Campbell and his producer wanted another song as soon as possible. Yeah. And he kept ringing him up and saying, "Have you finished this song?" Yeah, and he and, hadn't. And, and he no, hadn't got it, to he?
2: the late ar- afternoon. And I think a mixture of his inability to finish the song and he, and, and sick of being badgered personally by Glen Campbell. Um, that he actually sent the, the tape off, the reel to reel, and by a courier, uh, and sent it off. And then the denouement is they're at a recording for a Chevrolet ad, I think it is, and they're both there because they're both being paid there, paid to be there. And Jimmy Webb, rather in a sort of shy fashion, goes up to Glenn Cabral and says, So you didn't like it? He said, Didn't like it? We cut it. Yeah. Uh, and they recorded it that afternoon. And they did that it that afternoon. It. did it incredibly yeah. quickly. Yeah, done.
0: Now they, he, the 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 wrecking crew, who um, who, who Glenn Campbell was was one of, you know, they're referred to the wrecking crew. they they're given other other they were given other names in Los Angeles, the first call cool musicians. But as you say, these were the people who played on, you know, all the Beach Boys hits, you know, the Righteous Brothers, Monkeys, Sunny and Strangers Share. in the Night, absolutely, the Birds, Mr. anything. Image. We're just absolutely extraordinary people. And um, and it, I think it's really interesting that you, you picked a song like this because so much of the appeal of it is just in the performance of it, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? You know, we used to... we give I think sometimes we give excess respect to songwriters and insufficient respect to the people who animate their songs. Yeah, I think... And this is a classic case of this, isn't well, it?
2: Well, I... I... I think you're right because also, I mean, the um, when the book came out a couple of weeks ago, the I think it was the LRB did the thing where they where they did a, something on their website of. All the, all, all the great versions of Wichita Line Man. And it was great that they did that, but there aren't any There, great aren't, there aren't any. <laughs> <laughs> why, There's why one version.
1: This is it. There's yeah.
2: literally one version, and that's the is version. Is that,
1: that thing we were talking about this earlier, the idea that you would, you'd have the audacity to listen to Wichita Line yeah, Man yeah. and say, oh,
0: I can improve that.
2: Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. I, I,
1: Now, this is how it really ought it's to be. It's all right. Um, here,
0: imagine well, I mean, you know, doing that. You know, That's yeah. the ego of musicians. Yeah, you listen little... to this record, it's perfect to think, ah, but he hasn't got me on it. Look, know, we've got
1: we've the got weird a picture thing up is here.
0: We've got REM did a version. We're looking at uh, the heartaches version. We've got Cool and the
2: Gang did a version, <laughs> a which actually isn't terrible. Uh, it it's is not terrible. It's okay. not terrible. The, and weird, the I, feeling did I was a finishing the book last year, um, and we were on holiday in Ibiza. Uh, and, um, uh, the family went out to the beach, and I was finishing, I was trying to write, and I was doing. Sort of manic research, and there was one version. I can't remember who it's by. I'm sorry, but there's one version which is an hour long. By these, I mean they've got to be weird, haven't they? I mean, it's. I, I don't As know. That's, Isaac that's Hayes hasn't
0: it. done a, an hour-long version of it because he, he used to do really
2: long versions of. Oh yeah, TV he was a, he was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. I remember the first when I first heard Isaac Hayes live at the Sahara Tejo, and it was a. That was a big like Wisher tour for me. That was a big punk record. Um, and, and there was there's, there's, because it's a live record, and because we performing, and he's doing like eighteen. I think he does an eighteen-minute version or twenty-minute version. Of, by the time he get to Phoenix, there's a there's there's a, there's a period in the song where he takes off his jewelry, where he takes off all the chains around his neck, and you hear them on the floor like this. It's Absolutely <laughs> amazing. But the um, I, me, I mentioned the uh, the punk thing because this song stayed with me for ever 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 since then, ever since I first heard it when I was eight or nine, uh, and it was always sort of there, um, and I remember when I moved to London I moved to London in the summer of 1977 and I spent every night going to the Red Cow and uh, uh, the Rock Sea and the Under Club and I was you know I, I saw punk gigs that 's what I did. And, and and I loved it, and it was fantastic, amazing sense of freedom. And then I would go back to the Ralph West Halls of Residence, which, which was where you lived. If you came from out of London, you were going to one of the Central London Art Schools, um, which, which was interesting in itself, because you'd walk along the corridors, and you'd hear all this different music coming mm-hmm. out of yeah. every door. And I would go back, and... You know, I'm 17 years old. So I'm, and I'd play Blood on the Tracks and Hissing of Summer Lawns and all those records that you weren't meant to like because you're still learning about music at that age. And I was consuming all that stuff that you weren't allowed to like anymore. Meant to play The Lurkers. Exactly. Um, And one of the songs that I that I play, I still got it. It Was a Glen Campbell's Greatest Hits it was owned by my parents and it's got a stencil bowl type face it's really a, a big orange ugly picture of Glen Campbell and it had lots of Jimmy Webb songs on it but that was the one which, which I kept coming back to and as you say lots of right minded people do think it's but what the was best the, song what,
1: what ever what was the appeal of
2: it originally for you? because it's odd. Very odd I mean I like um, I, I like very very melancholic songs uh, and that is I think when you're a, a sort of broody, neurotic boy outsider, you're a teenager and you know you want to you know you're sort of, yeah. there are some songs you listen to when you want to be sad. Yeah. You know. And and you want to appear to be sad because it makes you look deep. And and one of and one of those songs was with Wichita Alignment, because it was it is a kind of sad song and it's, it's odd. Sad,
1: but it's also you've you've got as I said earlier on, there's only eight lines in it. And, yeah, and you've got no idea, really, they're, they're eight what's good
2: lines. going on. They're eight very, very you know, good lines. It you know, has I, to be so. I need you more than well, want I want you, and I want, I want you, for you for all time. time. I mean, that's heartbreaking. It's astonishingly
0: good. You see, I, think, I don't think it's sad, I think it's melancholy. Different thing, you know. what I I did use the word melancholy. We we really enjoy that feeling, don't we?
2: That's what I mean. You're enjoying feeling sad. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But
2: that's a completely legitimate experience. Yeah, that's a completely legitimate emotion. Yeah, yeah. But you can't tell. What's, I mean, firstly, when I first started,
1: I was very confused. I didn't actually know what a line well, was. Of course I didn't. Well, no no one did. I thought it was something to do with the rail, rail Is railroad. it telephone yeah. lines or power lines? I had lines. no idea what an overload is. It his is it
2: telephone lines or, or is Well, it yes, but he, I mean, this is the minutiae of. of we new, want to know. <laughs> yeah, we want to know. <laughs> he said, um, uh, and I write friend. about this in the book, <laughs> when um, uh, Jimmy Webb said that occasionally guys from the union would come up to you and said, You got that wrong. Because he was conflating the two things, telephone and power. Yeah, because right, the whole idea is he's you know he can hear it's, this, this. The this, idea of this, a telephone
0: his... engineer going, oh, "I think
2: you'll fine. Oh, think. <laughs> <laughs> much as much
0: as I like your song, Mister, <laughs> <laughs> Mr.
1: Mr. Well, I think you'll fine, it's time to go and recut the correct true. version." It's true. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> But but it's you know it wasn't until I interviewed him that I was clear about. What, what it, the song was meant to be, I, I thought that that it was the observer looking at the lineman and hearing the lineman through the wine and the, yeah. uh, the wires. And it, Jimmy Webb's thing was, you could see this guy had a, a, a receiver, like a like a like yeah. a telephone receiver. Was putting it in. So his idea was, was this guy actually tapping into conversations? And so once that was explained to me, it became clear that the little bit about going the snow down south and all that, and the holiday and all that. Maybe that's to do with an overheard conversation between two is. lovers. Yeah. That's you know, exactly what it apart, is. Yeah. You know, which but is it's amazing.
2: It's, it's the distillation, as I said earlier, of that perfect... That, a perfect song, because a perfect song is something which you can personalise, but also has a very specific, almost prescriptive idea of, of what it is. So it's got two, two things going on. It, it's your own experience... Which is, is is kind of broad and completely open to interpretation. Yeah. But at the same time, he's drawn something completely prescriptive, and it's a tight little sort of narrative. But Jimmy Webb
0: Jimmy Webb must know, and you, and you must have asked him about this. So it's a terrific piece of work, but he must know that what Glenn Campbell brings to it
2: is fifty percent. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> and they were. Um, they were really good friends. Jimmy Webb is a, is a card-carrying Democrat, um, and Glen Campbell was a Republican. Glen Campbell was a bluff, uh, sort of song and dance man, and Jimmy Webb was a kind of tortured composer.
1: Well, you make the point in the book brilliantly that, that it, it, again, it's the two of them that make it. If it had just been a, a Glen Campbell song, it would have been a, a kind of mainstream pop uh, pop country hit yeah, wouldn't yeah. it and if it had just been Jimmy Webb it wouldn't have had that huge appeal that the Glenn Campbell gives it well, well, Glenn Campbell has, a, has a
2: beautiful voice yeah Absolutely beautiful. So it's the voice. it's
1: the it's the kind of um it's that tension between kind of tradition and, and it's innovation. A re- it's
2: yeah. a
0: really simple voice, isn't it, as well. In here the Bruce Springsteen quote in, in here that says he doesn't he doesn't sing all over the place. Yeah. He just from, absolutely from trusts the song. He, go, he goes
2: from there, to he there. does. Yeah. He doesn't meander.
0: Yeah. Whereas yeah, increasingly nowadays people think Good singing is thing is something that involves a lot of obvious singing. Yeah, too much variety. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, but there's yeah.
1: another another point in, the, in your your excellent book which I hadn't thought of at all, which was the appeal of it in 1968 when it came out. A lot of that was to do with the fact that Robert Kennedy had just been assassinated, is that right? And Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. I think, was assassinated. The Vietnam War was going on. America was incredibly preoccupied with a, a lot of quite complicated things, and this song. Uh, which was a sort of escape, really. It, you know, it was about something unspecific. Well, like I
2: said, it had nothing to do... It, it, well, it had nothing to do with the zeitgeist. It wasn't yeah. commenting on, on the zeitgeist. Yeah. And it wasn't in the zeitgeist. Which is saying that you had this sort of, the, these two parallel words, w- worlds of what was going on in the counterculture. And actually, if you look at... If you actually look at the news reports of the time, the counterculture in the 60s was was the counterculture these days you know, we talk about the 60s uh, and we look at counterculture and think that was the culture yeah and it actually wasn't it was no. it was it was yeah, it, it was, was the opposition of course it was <laughs> yeah because the man was yeah, the culture yeah, yeah. Yeah. um and so actually a lot of this stuff was part of mainstream pop culture which now is diminished and denigrated because it doesn't fit the narrative of of youth culture explosion yeah yeah I must just—I
0: mean—we must just return to the fact that it is more than a perfect song; it's a perfect record. Uh, and uh, you're obsessed with this. Aren't I you? am. I'm sorry. I'm not going to stop going on about <laughs> it. No, I guess. <laughs> I, think, I think we're increasingly—we—we, we, you know, give songwriters the praise for things that are very often musicians. And there's a classic case of this on which Joe not which is the opening bass figure, which is played by Carol Kay. You know the. She's the, amazing. The sole female musician in the wrecking crew played on all those records. And so she's the person who invents the, the dun, bass dun, on Sonny yeah. and sh- shares the beat goes on. And, yeah. you know, she probably played the bass on, on Mr. Tambourine Man with the, that swooping Well, she's a great
2: bass. story in herself. And I managed to track down, a. Uh, I think it was a self-published book, which is a a bit like her version of the great Jimmy Webb book about songwriting, when she talks in granular detail about how to play the bass and how to be prominent when you're a bass player, and also being one of the few women in a very, very male... Well, she was the only one at that time, wasn't yeah, she? She wasn't the only one, but she was pretty much the only one. She was the only real successful one, yeah, apart yeah. from singers. Yeah. And that in itself is quite an achievement in the, in the mid-60s.
0: But they, 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 you know, the producer or whoever's running the session must just say, they're looking for something at the beginning of this. But you can't make it too showy, can you? You, know, you can't <laughs> say, I've got a terrific idea for a long solo. It has to be a tiny little. Well, it's like Walk on the Wild Side, a really good example. Yeah, there, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. The Herbie Flowers,
1: yeah. I think? Yeah. The electric bass and the string bass. If you take and that it, away from that song, it's a companion. It's, 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 it's not it's a song, it's at all. a big, different
2: record. Yeah. yeah, it's just the moon, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure if he didn't get a percentage for that. Actually, I think, at the end,
1: wasn't there a court case where I think he got some money for it? Well, I I think and rightly so. I,
0: I think I think the truth is, Herbie Flowers he got twice the session fee, so he got two twenty-five pounds, I think, because he played both electric, electric bass and, and string, string bass. That's right. So yeah. So yeah. he got double. Yeah. But he invented "Walk on the Wild Side." Let's yeah. not make Absolutely, any bones about yeah. it at all. Now, Jimmy Webb. You know, we've all met him, very nice chap, a man with, it, with a lot of kind of, you always feel there's a lot hidden with Jimmy Webb, did you find that? Lots hidden? Yeah, well, like he wrote, a, he wrote an autobiography a couple of years ago that was just, it zoomed in on certain years in his life and completely ignored other ones, as if there was long periods that he spent drinking and drugging and... <laughs>
1: Well, there were. Well, there, there were. were. Let's be honest. Funny oh, I he should tell, say. He told me a fantastic story about lending his car to Harry Nielsen. Oh, he has re- a brand really, new really a Jaguar. good idea. And, uh, <laughs> and Harry Nielsen said, I just need to go into the car. He, says, he tosses him the keys. They've had a drink. And he says, oh. yes, drinking and driving. And uh, he says, um, you know, borrow the keys and, you know, head off to town. And he didn't see him again for two months. <laughs> and when the car came back, it was, it was in such appalling... Shape It had to be put through a crusher into a little cube. Well, the the number
2: of apocryphal stories about Richard Harris are legion. I mean, there's another famous story where he goes... I can't remember. Someone calls for Richard Harris. And it could be Peter O'Toole, it could be Richard Burton. It could be Jimmy Webb. They call for Richard Harris, you know, and they go out. And they're not seen for, like, four days. And then Richard Harris comes home... His wife opens the door and he says, "Why didn't you pay the ransom?" <laughs> <laughs> Probably not true. No, That's yeah, brilliant. No, no, no. Let's just say it is. Yeah. So, so, how did you find Jimmy Webb? Uh, an absolute delight. And as I said, he was—he's um, a—he's a very, very, very smart man. Um, and in, uh, interestingly, he was and then, and, like you know like your good selves i 've interviewed a lot of very famous people, and he 's been famous and and successful for a very, very long time, completely unguarded well, i don 't think anyone's completely unguarded, but very, very unguarded and I think that um possibly and this might be a conceited thing to say, but I think he like likes talking about his craft right he likes talking to other people who understand or have an interest in, I should say, about the construction of songs. Um, and he was very good and very vocal and lots of stuff I couldn't use about the current stage of songwriting and the fact that hits now are written by 15 people. Which is a huge difference. It's a massive difference. Completely different. I mean, everything is written Somebody to order. writes the melody. somebody puts together... Yeah, and, and the also everything has to be sold, you know, like in the first five seconds because people will just skip on their telephone, etc., etc., etc. I mean, you can talk about that f- for ages, and he did, and he's brilliant on it. But um, you felt there was, there was a lot there. Uh, and also you kind of felt that, I kind of felt that songwriting happened to be the way that he chose to express himself, And in another life, or having made another decision, he could have equally done it in a a different form. I mean, the book he wrote about songwriting is is actually... It's not only really interesting, but it's beautifully written. It's a very well-written book. It's well-constructed.
0: Another theory of mine is that you can't go chasing music. You have to wait for music to find you. And I've heard Wichita Lineman since it came out in whenever, 68. And uh, I always liked it. It's only in the last five years I've realised how much I like it. Really? Yeah. And I think that's. You heathen. Sorry? You you heathen. (laughs) No, I've (laughs) always liked it. I've always had it. But I think, you know, certain records find their time. And that record to me sounds. You know, if you're going to listen to Strangers in the Night now, it sounds a bit clanky. Whereas Wigital Limelon just sounds like. If you would say that's the most perfect record ever made, let's all shut up shop. You'd think, fine,
1: that's yeah, it, well, which a lot of people have said, and quite but recently. Ne- I think neither
2: of the consensus, is. quite recently. Neither of my agents thought that. Right uh, after um, uh, the, I, the, the Bowie book I did a couple of years ago, which, unusually for me, was very successful. Right. Um, <laughs> and my agent at the time, who was Ed Victor, is now sadly passed away. He said, well, "You've had this hit. What are you going to do?" And I said, well, actually, what I really want to do, I want to write a book about Richard Lyman. And he said, he was American, he said, Dylan, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> and then Ed sadly died, and I got a new agent, a guy called Johnny Geller, who runs Curtis Brown. Lovely man, very different. And he said, so you've, you know, you've had this hit, what are you going to do? And I said, "Like, would like to write a book about Richard Lyman. He said, that's not a good idea at all. Well, I think they're wrong. Well, I thought that Faber would be interested in so I... Um, uh, so we took a meeting, but they're only Kate looking at that from a commercial point of view. They're not looking at that from a, from a, the point of view of whether or not that song deserves an entire book written about it. Well, actually, I I, I disagree. I mean, yeah, they, they they're not purposefully going to publish something they think won't work, but they are an independent publisher, and I think they took a punt on the fact that, you know, the the uh, this it was a good idea. You know, who knows? So, I don't know, but I'm internally grateful. Um, because they did, and it allowed yeah. me to write about something which I'm passionate about, which is the kind of point, I suppose. So what's know?
0: next? I don't I... like Mondays by the Boontown Rat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> You're quite feisty tonight, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> Actually, I've just handed in, I've finished, I've just done an oral biography of the New Romantics.
0: Right. Um... <laughs> Yeah, oh you can, <laughs> yeah. You can sign That's up some good. sign up some buyers um, here
2: tonight. Yeah, it goes from 75 to 85 and it starts in the clubs and it's um synth pop, neuromantic, club culture ends and ends with live aid. So it's it's that period. Again, which I think even though I lived through all of that, uh I, you're obviously both quoted in it um um quite extensively, but I think it's a period which is not forgotten, but actually generally is under, underrated and undervalued. I mean, I know that you, a lot of the music you say sounds tinny from that period but, um, and some of it does, but there was some extraordinary music made through that period, so that, that's what I've just finished. Well, we'll look forward to that, Dylan. Thank you very much and indeed. And uh, as
0: they say on telly, will you come back and talk to us Yeah, about? come back and tell us all about it. <laughs> I fear I've overstayed my welcome. Push it on the
2: sofa. Four times, but thank you very much indeed, of course
0: Dylan
1: Jones, ladies gentlemen that be on Richard and Judy.
0: <laughs> 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 Thank you very much. This
2: podcast was brought to you by the Word.